doesn't sin always seem just so attractive? To us, sin looks as if it is going to be straightforward, uncomplicated, and the easy way out of a difficult situation. Sin just whispers away to us, this is the easy way to a better life. And one of the things that I really want us to see together this morning is the fact that that is not true. Sin always makes life far, far more complicated, despite what it says to us. This morning we're going to see how Mordecai and Esther, they compromise and they sin, and it drags them down even into more complicated circumstances. But we're going to see good news as well, because we're going to see that the Lord God stands sovereign over all the complexities of life, even over our sin, and he is able to use it for our glory and for his good. So let's go back to the start of chapter 2 and see something of what's going on in Esther's life. And I'm going to call this section Chameleon-like Compromise. Do you know those little creatures, the chameleon? They've got that uncanny ability to be able to blend in with their surroundings no matter what they're standing beside. It might be sand. It could be some dead leaves on the ground. Might be a little pile of twigs. They might be trying to hide among leaves. And apparently, in just two minutes, the panther chameleon can change from a rather demure green into bright red and yellow. It's because their skin cells contain millions of little tiny crystals that can reflect different colors of light. And so they blend in very, very easily with their surroundings, so much so that they are impossible to spot. And here in chapter 2, Esther has become just like one of those chameleons. So let's pick up the story. Ahasuerus, we heard about it last night, Vashti has been banished, and so he needs a new queen. And the young men who are the king's advisors, they devise a plan. There is going to be an empire-wide search to commandeer only the most beautiful young girls. This is no voluntary beauty pageant. This is not the kind of thing that you sign up for. In this competition, none of the contestants would have been going home afterwards. These beautiful girls, they are found, they are trafficked across the empire, and they are brought to the harem at Susa. There they find themselves under the care of the king's eunuch, Haggai, and no expense is spared in their elaborate beauty treatments. Verse 12, six months of treatment with oil and myrrh, and then six months with spices and ointments. 
After this, one by one, a different girl is brought before the king each night. And then after that, they are relegated to the second harem. And that is where they will live out their days unless they are specifically called for by name. It was a dreadfully wicked and cruel system. Horrible exploitation designed simply to satisfy the king's lusts. That's the stage. And now Esther enters. (coughs) Esther's been orphaned. And her older cousin Mordecai has adopted her into his family. And he treats her as his daughter. Just try to imagine for a moment what... A hugely traumatic experience this must have been for young Esther. Orphaned, carried off into exile, all the old certainties of life are completely swept away. And Esther finds herself caught between two worlds. On the one hand, Esther has got a genealogy that stretches all the way back to the patriarchs of Israel. Her line's given to us in verse 5. This is a family that is descended from Benjamin. But on the other hand, Esther and Mordecai are living through the trauma of being carried far away from home to a foreign land and to a place where idolatry is everywhere. You get that feel of that even from the names that they're given. Mordecai means man of Marduk, one of the Babylonian gods. And Esther's name is probably derived from Ishtar, one of the Babylonian goddesses. But Esther's got another name. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah. It means myrtle. The prophet said... When God poured out his blessings, well, the place of curse would be somewhere where the fragrant myrtle, the fragrant Esther, would flower with its shining leaves and bright white flowers. So here she is, and she's got two names. Which one fits her best? There's the Babylonian name, Esther, and then There's her covenant name, Hadassah. Well, in verse 7, with great understatement, the narrator tells us that Esther had a beautiful figure and she was lovely to look at. So obviously, when the king's officials came along, they took her away. And she found herself thrown into a world where people did not share her family's faith and values. How is she going to live there? Is she going to let the world define her? Which king is she going to serve? Remember what we were thinking about last night? There's one king who looks like he's the real ruler of the world. Is she going to serve King Ahasuerus? Or is she going to serve the invisible king who sits on a higher throne? Who is Esther? Who is Hadassah going to be loyal to? Is she going to be faithful to God or will her loyalties be divided? And I guess here 
all our stories suddenly intersect with Esther's story. Because we're just like Esther, aren't we? We live in a world where we feel so much pressure to conform to the pattern of this world. To conform to the way that the world defines things. And the way that the world tells us what success is, what wealth is, what true beauty is like, what pleasure really is. We find ourselves in two worlds. And which one is the one that will define us? What will win the ultimate loyalty of our hearts? Well, back to our story. Esther's been raised by Mordecai. And he has charged her not to reveal anything about her background. This is the easier way. Mordecai tells Esther to keep quiet about being a Jew and so to conceal her membership of the covenant people of God. Mordecai wants Esther to be like the chameleon. He wants her to blend in. Maybe he told her it's fine. The Lord knows what you really believe deep down in your heart, but just live in a way that keeps that quiet. Play it down to avoid all the problems that would come from being clear about it. But the issue is that for Esther to do that, it would almost certainly have involved great compromise. You get the feeling, though, from Esther that she's doing far more than simply trying to blend in here. During the year of preparations, it seems that Esther went out looking for success in the whole thing. In verse 9, she actively wins Haggai's favor, and she submits to all the treatments were on offer. To me, it seems as if Esther has fully embraced this world's understanding of what beauty actually looks like. She's more than content to eat the special palace food that Haggai provides. And the result is that Esther is promoted to the highest and most favored position within the harem. The path of luxury that led her there would have been one of compromise and disobedience. Verse 10 Esther had not made known her people or kindred. Now you might say, but come on, what choice did Esther really have in this? Aren't you being too tough on her? She's been orphaned. She's been taken away from home. She's in a pagan court. This is a dangerous place. Wasn't it the right thing to do just to blend in? Well, this is not the first time that God's people have found themselves in a situation like that. Remember Daniel? He found himself in a very, very similar situation. He was in exile. He had two names. He was Daniel, but they called him Belteshazzar. And when he and his friends were conscripted into the service of the empire, Daniel firmly took his stand. He did it clearly. 
He did it quietly, but he did do it consistently. Do you remember the children's song? I'm sure they still sing it at different things. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. And dare to make it known. That's what marked out Daniel's life when he was in the pagan empire. Daniel was prepared to defy the king's edict, and he did it with great courage, even though it meant the lion's den. So Esther and Mordecai, they're in a situation so like Daniel's, but they take a very different path. Theirs is a path that goes the way of compromise. Esther's in the luxurious harem. She's swept off her feet by the most powerful man in the world. She lets the empire define her. She hides her identity as a Jew. And Esther is, in the end, indistinguishable. Esther is no Daniel. She is compromised. Esther is in the world and off the world. It's chameleon faith, and we know it in our own experience. With our friends, in our place of work, in college, we know what it's like to be assimilated, to be assimilated to such a degree that we too are often virtually indistinguishable from our unbelieving friends and colleagues. It's just so easy for us willingly to be enslaved to the way that the world thinks about success and about wealth and about beauty. We end up blending in. Just like Esther, we can be confused and we can be downright disobedient. And it doesn't have to be that way. Queen Vashti in this story is living proof that you can take your stand. She was a pagan, but she still showed that the empire can't ultimately compel obedience. Resistance is possible, and assimilation is not inevitable. But Esther, she is fully compliant. She hides and conceals her identity. That would have meant that in that royal harem, she would have violated God's law over and over again. She rejected the Jewish food laws, no qualms about eating the royal food. Hiding her identity would have mean that, meant that she wouldn't have been able to keep the Sabbath. One compromise would have led to another. She sleeps with a man that she's not married to. And then the upshot of it all is that Esther wins this competition and she is crowned queen. And then, to top it all, this daughter of Israel ends up marrying an uncircumcised pagan king. You could say that this is total capitulation. Let's pick up the story in verse 19. We're at the king's gate. In ancient cities, the gate was the place where business and politics was conducted. So when it talks about Mordecai being at 
the king's gate. Don't imagine that these are the railings of the palace and Mordecai's walking past trying to catch a glimpse of what's going on inside. It's telling us that Mordecai walks the corridors of power. The archaeologists, they've dug up the foundations of the gate of the citadel of Susa. It was a great building with a large central hall, and that is where Mordecai works. In verse 21, he overhears two disgruntled and disaffected eunuchs, Big Fan and Teresh, conspiring against the king. They were part of the king's own personal bodyguards. They were the ones who controlled access to his private apartments. And Mordecai hears of the plot, and he acts quickly. He passes on the intelligence, and so he foils the assassination attempt. After due process, verse 23, the two traitors meet their end by being impaled upon wooden stakes. Now, Persian kings like Ahasuerus were known for the swift and the very extravagant ways in which they rewarded acts of loyalty like this. They knew that people were out conspiring against them. So if you helped, if you played your part, you would be elevated to a high position. You would receive recognition and promotion. And we wait. When's Mordecai going to be promoted? When will he be rewarded for thwarting this plot? But nothing happens. It's written down. It's recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the King. And that is it. And then we come to chapter 3, verse 1. And we read of a promotion. We read of someone being rewarded. But it is not Mordecai. Instead, in the twist... Mordecai is overlooked, and Haman instead is elevated. And he's exalted to a position which is right next to the throne itself. And verse 2 tells us that court protocol demanded that Mordecai ought to bow down and pay homage to Haman. And everyone bows, apart from Mordecai. Again and again, Mordecai will not bow down. And his colleagues keep asking him, why do you keep disobeying this commandment? And initially, it's as if Mordecai just ignores them and sweeps the question away. But finally, in verse 4, he says, well, it's because I'm a Jew. That's why I won't bow. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that forbids paying respect and giving due honor. The king's command was clear. Mordecai should simply buy, but he will not. What's going on here? Why will Mordecai not bow down in front of Haman? Well, we're told in chapter 3, verse 1, that Haman is an Agagite. He's related to Agag, the king of Israel's arch enemies, the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites had the dubious distinction of being the first nation to attack God's people when they left Egypt in the Exodus. And in Deuteronomy, the Lord had ordered that Israel must destroy Amalek. 
didn't happen. Later on in Israel's history, King Saul was given the command to bring down the judgment of God upon the Amalekites. But Saul failed to do that. Saul thought he knew best. He thought that compromise was the best way forward. And so King Saul spared some of the Amalekites. In particular, he spared King Agag, Haman's ancestor. And after that, the Amalekites remained a thorn in the flesh of the Israelites. Do you see how it makes that point that sin always has consequences? This disobedience that had happened before in Israel's history, it kept coming back to haunt them again and again. So for Mordecai, this whole thing is deeply personal. Because Mordecai, well, we're given something of Mordecai's family tree in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. And there we're told who he was. Mordecai was a son of Kish, the Benjaminite. And Kish, some of you will know, he was the father of King Saul. So it was all too much for Mordecai to bow down to a sworn enemy like that, particularly someone like Haman, who is just so cocky and self-assured. It was too much, but it was also foolish. Why on earth would Mordecai think that this was the hill to die on? Think of all the compromises that Mordecai has made. Think of his chameleon faith, the way that he has blended in. And now suddenly he decides that he's got to take his stand as a Jew. Up to this point, he hasn't shown any concern for godliness. He's had no qualms about his cousin, whom he's fostering, being taken into the harem of a Gentile king with all its unclean food and defiling practices. He has explicitly commanded her to hide her Jewishness. And now, in a matter in which Mordecai probably should have obeyed the king, he decides that as a Jew, he simply could not comply. It's like that in this complicated world, isn't it? Jesus said in Matthew 23 that so often we swallow down whole camels and we go around trying to strain out gnats. Take a strong stand on some things, while all sorts of other really important things, we are content to ignore them. Well, back in our story, the people went and they spoke to Haman about this, and Haman is filled with rage. He demands respect, and Mordecai refuses to give this. And so, for Haman, it means that this is time for payback. For Haman, killing Mordecai, that would not be enough. One would not be enough to satisfy his murderous appetite for revenge. And so Haman plots the destruction of all the Jewish people, wherever they are spread, 
in the 127 different provinces. This will be a pogrom. This will be a final solution. Haman will wipe out all the Jews in ethnic cleansing. This is a really difficult situation for God's people, a really complex one. And Haman, as he is involved in it, he's very superstitious. He thinks that blind chance governs the universe. And so to discover when the best time is to do this, they cast the purr, they cast lots, little clay dice with figures inscribed on them so that they determine just the right month and exactly the right day in order to launch this assault. Haman needs the king's approval. That isn't going to be any kind of a problem to someone as skilled in manipulation as Haman. He goes in and says, Emperor, I will not bore you with all the details of this. But in verse 8, with a mixture of half-truths and lies, he manipulates the king. It's full of irony again, so much irony in Esther. Verse 8, Haman says, this people do not keep the king's laws. They live by another law. Tragically, when it comes to Esther and Mordecai at this point, well, they do keep the king's law. They don't live by the law of their God. Haman offers an enormous bribe, more than 300 tons of silver, a huge amount. The king thinks, I will go with this. In verse 10, he hands over the signet ring, and in an impulsive decision with a total disregard for human life and without checking the details, he agrees to sign this into law. This man, Ahasuerus, he is not the real king. He says he's powerful. He is so easily manipulated. He doesn't realize that his queen is Jewish and that he owes his very life to Mordecai the Jew. Well, the whole civil service and foreign office and army are involved in this state-backed genocide. Letters are sent out, and the Edict of Destruction announces that all the Jews will be destroyed on a day 11 months in the future. Verse 15, they've planned all of this. They've planned the annihilation of an entire ethnic group, but with their work for the day done, they retire for drinks. They sit back as the edict of destruction wings its way to the farthest corners of the empire. From a human point of view, things could not look any more bleak for God's people. Sin never makes things easy. It always makes things more complicated. Past sins, they have consequences which live on to plague us. Just think how things would have been different if King Saul had done what he should have done. If Saul hadn't have thought that he knew best, this problem would not have arisen and come back to haunt them. Or later on, think of what would have happened if the people of Israel had been faithful in the promised land. 
Well, no exile would have come. They would have not been carried far away and find themselves living in Persia. So many things come together to make sin really complicated in our world. There's all the injustice, injustice that you know about. Everyone's workplace, it's full of injustice, things which are not fair. Look what's happened to Mordecai. Mordecai has done the right thing. He saved the king's life. He ought to have been promoted for it. And yet promotion is passed by and it's given to someone else. That is not fair. The situation is complicated because there are other people who act in an irrational way. Mordecai won't buy, and in response, Haman wants to wipe out all the Jewish people. So much of that in our world, just this irrational excess, people out for revenge. There's superstition in the mix with all of this. Choices are based on lots that are thrown on a whim like that. There are people who are out manipulating others, spinning a web of lies and deceit and half-lies. There's bribery at play here, the love and the allure of money, complicating and distorting situations. Sin is like that. Our world is like that. The place where you find yourself is full of that complex web of things coming together from so many different sinful decisions. And often you look at it and you think, how on earth would you ever begin to try to untangle this, to find a way forward? Because sin always leaves this complex, tangled, knotty difficulty. Well, what do we need to know when we find ourselves living in the complex web of sin, where often we're part of it, where our compromise has meant that we have blended into the whole thing. Well, our chapters tell us a few really important things that we need to remember. The first one's this. None of this situation is an accident. God's hand stands sovereign over it all. We have the benefit of knowing the end of the story. But even at this point, Esther and Mordecai, with all their compromise and failure, with all their foolish decisions, God's hand stands over it. And Esther and Mordecai, compromised though they are, turn out to be exactly the sort of people that God will use for his glory. He's put them in just the right place at just the right time. He's put Mordecai exactly where he needed to be to thwart one plot against the king. And he's putting Esther and Mordecai in exactly the place where they need to be to thwart a plan against all the Jewish people. God's hand stands sovereign over it all. Despite the sinful actions of humans, despite our foolish choices, God is able to weave even our sin into his pattern to accomplish all his holy plan. In this life, we are never victims 
of chance. God's sovereignty, it is astonishingly great. God's sovereignty is so mind-boggling that even bad decisions and foolish choices are in the end part of his divine appointment. Even when evil forces are at work, God remains sovereign and he is able to use even his enemies to serve his purposes. That's great to know, isn't it? God's able to work through it all. God's even able to work through things which seem like random moments of chance. This casting of the poor, the casting of the lots. What's the writer of the Proverbs tell us? Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The Lord determines every decision even supposedly random decisions. So in our complex world, where we have done all sorts of things to make it even more complicated, we need to know that God stands over it all. We also need to know that there's a cosmic battle going on. What we're reading about here is something that goes way back in Israel's history. Not just back to King Saul, not just back to the Amalekites in Exodus. This goes the whole way back to the Garden of Eden. There's that battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's true in our world today, in these complicated things that we see and and get caught up in. Part of the reason why it's complicated is because there are evil forces at work. Here's a third thing to remember. It's a tiny little detail in verse 12. When does the edict go out? Well, the 13th day of the first month. Now, that doesn't mean much to us, but every single Jew would have known the significance of that day. The decree goes out on the eve of Passover. It's the wonderful thing about God's providence. The bureaucrats, they don't know this. They never would have guessed this when they were signing all the paperwork. It goes out on the day before Passover. And Passover reminds us that when God's people were enslaved and when they were living under a sentence of death, God intervened to rescue them. The Lord, he is the God of salvation. He's made salvation promises And not even the might of the Persian Empire will be able to thwart those purposes. And so that's good news. God is the God of salvation. The blood of the Passover lamb means that there is hope for all sinners who come to Jesus Christ. And ultimately that means that the book of Esther preaches a gospel of hope to us. This is a book which is full of good news. In chapter 2, the compromise was massive. We could say that it was total capitulation on the part of Esther. But in the coming chapters, God's redeeming grace, the grace that flows from the blood of the Passover lamb, will get to work 
in the lives of both Esther and Mordecai. And compromised and foolish though they were, God's redeeming grace will produce great faith and heroic courage. Past failures, past failures do not write us out of God's plan. Even though at this point in the story, Esther is hopelessly compromised. God has plans for this young woman. He will turn her life around. Her history, her catalogue of sins, it does not disqualify her from later faith and obedience. Esther is going to be used to bring great blessing to God's people. And that is good news for us. Because so often we are just like Esther and Mordecai. Think of all our sins. Think of all our compromises. Think of those situations where we feel as if we are just trapped in this. We've sinned, we've been sinned against, we've responded in a sinful way. It is so naughty and complicated. How would you ever find a way out of this web? Well, the gospel of the book of Esther says, the Lord is the God of salvation. He has all power at his disposal. And he can bring this people through this and he can completely transform their lives through it. That is good news. Some of us here this morning will have compromised in exactly the ways that Esther did. We'll have hidden who we are because the cost seemed too high. For some of us, compromise will have meant that we have wasted years of our life already simply pursuing the things of this world. Some of us will have made sinful choices in relationships that leave us with deep regrets. Esther says there is hope for moral failures. We might think, how on earth could God ever use a sinner like me? Well, the Gospel of Esther says... Our gracious God is a God full of redeeming grace. He has grace for those who make huge mistakes. He has grace for those who in the past have embraced the world. He has grace for those whose lives have been riddled with compromise. God can use our weakened, broken lives. He can redeem us. Let me close with an illustration. Have you ever seen some of Leonardo da Vinci's drawings made in charcoal? Often in museums, these are some of the things that tourists flock to. Even a few years ago, the Ulster Museum brought a whole exhibition of da Vinci's charcoal drawings there. They are hauntingly beautiful, incredible in the way that they're drawn, and they're drawn with lumps of broken wood. Burnt wood, all that it can do is produce dark lines and smudges. But just like da Vinci was a master with charcoal, our God is a master at taking up our broken, damaged lives. And Esther shows us that he can draw the most beautiful and amazing pictures with them, all to his glory. God draws 
beautiful pictures that weave in even the dark spots and the smudges of our broken lives. Let us pray.